This presentation was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Reverend Echo Little. The title of his talk, The Monastic Instinct to Revere, to Conserve, to Be Content with Little, and to Share. Good afternoon to all of you. Um, my talk today is on the uh, monastic instinct to revere, conserve, be content, and to share. And in the course of the talk, I would like to expand our understanding of instinct uh, to also uh, encompass both attitude and virtue because they all move into the same, same area. And also to think of the idea of the instinct, the attitude, the virtue to revere, conserve, be content with little as something that uh, comes about with cultivation and practice. Yes, please. I'll do my best. Thank you. And I'll explain this part of it uh, later. Uh, at this point, I'll just say now I don't write on boards very much. And one leg is shorter than the other. Uh, I'd like to introduce this topic with a story. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a moment until you see uh, where I'm going with it. Because I think it uh, is a wonderful way of introducing the uh, monastic instinct, the monastic attitude. In 1418, in the city of Florence, Italy, there was a competition announced for the design and building for the dome of the new cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. The participants had six weeks to submit models, designs, or even make suggestions on how to vault the cathedral's very large dome. Sponsoring the competition was a group called the Opera del Duomo, the Office of Works that was in charge of the building, which had begun construction in 1296, over 100 years before. With a handsome commission and plenty of prestige at stake, this competition uh, drew the most talented designers of the time, <coughs> architects, masons, builders, and more than a dozen models were submitted for the competition. And the way that the models would be submitted was that they would be built on the floor of the new cathedral that was under construction. But the most daring and talented an unorthodox model did not come from a famous architect or a builder or a mason, but was instead the brainchild of a Florentine clockmaker and jeweler named Filippo Brunelleschi. Now the model of Brunelleschi's dome spanned six feet and it was 12 feet high. It needed 49 cartloads of quicklime to hold together the 5,000 bricks which constructed it. 
It was big enough for a person to walk into and to inspect the construction. It was completely unorthodox. His method of building design omitted the woman, the, the wooden framing or scaffolding that was usually put in the middle of any dome over which you laid the bricks. And this radical difference, the fact that it had no scaffolding, uh, completely distinguished it from all the other models and designs. So different was this approach that all of the members of the building commission wanted to know how he was going to do it. They were completely baffled, and he did not help them. His design was a complete mystery. He would not tell them how he would do it. He would not discuss his plans. He would not show them any drawings. He was completely secretive. And uh, he, only, he worked alone all the time with only one or two uh, assistants to help him. So they, uh, as Italians are wont to do, they got very excited. And during the many spirited discussions that they had over the building of the new dome, during one of them, they literally threw Filippo Brunelleschi out of the cathedral precincts. The wardens called him an ass and a babbler. And finally, possibly out of desperation or as a stroke of uh, genius, Filippo proposed to the group of wardens that anyone among the competitors who could make an egg stand on its end on a piece of marble should be given the commission. And eggs were brought in and passed out to all the competitors and to everyone on the Opera del Duomo board. And none of them could do it. And so they turned to, to Brunelleschi and in Italian fashion, you know, <laughs> said. And so he took an egg. Okay. This is not a real egg. I borrowed this from a parrot. It's her favorite toy. He took an egg and very smartly and quickly, he whacked it on the end and stood it right on the piece of marble. And they looked at him like this and said, well, if we had known that, we could have done it. And he said, gentlemen, all of you, any of you could build the dome of Santa Maria if you knew my plans. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> so finally, after uh, all of uh, many more discussions, grudgingly, he was given the commission to build the, the dome. He completed the dome of Santa Maria del Fiore in 1436. Pope Eugenius IV consecrated the cathedral one month later, 16 years and two weeks after construction had begun. And uh, it was a very difficult construction as things were in those days. It was completely successful. The dome is still standing. It is the biggest church dome in the world. It spans 143 feet. It's bigger than any other cathedral dome. When I read this story, it captured my imagination. 
Filippo Brunelleschi knew how to make an egg stand on its end. The humble egg is an unremarkable object that is familiar to everyone. Millions of pounds of eggshells are thrown away every day without much thought given to the beautiful uh, proportion and design of that elegant oval. But how many of us know how to make an egg stand on its end? The egg standing on its end is the perfect metaphor for the monastic life. The ordinary egg is someone is something that everyone is familiar with and doesn't think twice about. But the egg, handled by someone with the special knowledge, the special wisdom of its shape, and everything that that shape is capable of, that egg can be made to do something that is quite remarkable. In the same way, the wisdom of a monastic, of a monastic life, which comes from his or her vows and religious practice, enables the monastic to do something that few people know how to do. And I would add to this that this would be the the same knowledge that a deeply religious person would also possess, whether they be monastic or not. But this special thing is how to find true happiness and contentment within themselves. That happiness does not come from prestige. It does not come from fame. It does not come from gain. It does not come from accomplishment, wealth, or property. But it comes from the intentional cultivation of reverence, renunciation, gratitude, and generosity. These monastic instincts, these monastic virtues, are the egg standing on its end. Although Filippo built the model of the Dome of Santa Maria, the most interesting thing about his project is that he actually didn't know how he was going to build it. He hadn't worked out the details. He had a general idea, but he had to work it out as he went along. He didn't fully know how he was going to do it, but he believed that he could do it. And his ingenious construction methods were all developed in the course of the cathedral's construction. In fact, there was a young art student who used to come in and sketch his construction uh, machines. The art student's name was Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci's drawings survived. Filippo's plans, he never showed them to anybody. His did not, and his were only found uh, recently. Filippo had faith in himself that he could do it and to complete it successfully. A monastic cultivates religious faith to lead the life of reverence, renunciation, gratitude, and generosity. However, learning the practical cultivation of these virtues, that's something that you learn as you go along. We have to cultivate the faith needed to meet and overcome the obstacles we encounter, internal and external, that are inevitable 
in religious life. Even though we don't know how to do it when we start, we can't allow that from preventing us from going ahead. It is a creative work in which monastic virtues are both created and discovered. We learn how to do it by doing it. It requires faith, it requires wisdom, patience. With that faith and wisdom and patience, Filippo Brunelleschi built the largest church dome in the world. Our monastic lives are composed of the very virtues which can help to save the world in the midst of the modern environmental crisis which we must all face. And these virtues are something that anyone can practice, not just monastics. Anybody can learn how to stand an egg on its end and keep it standing there. The next thing that I would like to tell you about is about the about the founder of the Soto Zen tradition in Japan. Uh, this was a monastic named Ehe Dogen who was advised by his Chinese master to find a place deep in the mountains away from the world to practice the way of the Buddhas. Nowadays, Dogen is regarded as a kind of Buddhist Thoreau embraced both by Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike as an environmental prophet many centuries ahead of his time. And if you're not familiar with Dogen's name, you are likely to see his name linked more and more with environmental issues. And his voluminous writings, in which he used a lot of nature imagery, are most likely going to be quoted for a long, long time. His writings and teachings deserve to be included and studied in this modern context. However, as with many prophets, his teachings are often misunderstood, his words often misquoted, and his meaning somewhat distorted. He's popularly thought of as a nature mystic, as a kind of Buddhist Saint Francis because his, uh, his works, as I said, are rich in its natural imagery. And it's really easy to think of him this way. In fact, one of his most uh, famous discourses is entitled The Mountains and Rivers Sutra. But Dogen was not an environmental prophet. Instead, he was a revolutionary religious thinker. And primarily, he was a monk, a monastic. He saw the relationship between the sentient and the non-sentient world, between the human world and the natural world in a constant state of religious fusion. Once we look at the basis of his vision, Dogen actually does become a real luminary of the monastic view of the environment as well as a real prophet for a sacred and sustainable environmental culture. 
One of the themes of our conference is the monastic instinct to revere. Dogen's vision of the eternal, which he called Buddha nature, could be described, and it's a particularly poor way of describing it, but it, it, can, it can work, can be described as reverential realization. Dogen believed that everything is Buddha nature. Buddha nature is the essence of Buddhahood that permeates all beings. Everyone is endowed with Buddha nature, and each and every one of us can fully realize Buddha nature through our religious practice. But to Dogen, it was insufficient to say that all beings are endowed with Buddha nature or that Buddha nature or that all beings have Buddha nature. Everyone is Buddha nature. And not just everyone. Everything is Buddha nature too. Everyone and everything, be it sentient or insentient, is Buddha nature. It is the living tissue of the essence of Buddhahood. Everything. The only way then to practice the Buddha nature of everything and everyone is to treat everyone and everything as Buddha nature, as sacred. To Dogen, everyone and everything is literally the living, manifest, fully realized body of Buddha. I wrote this equation up here. Buddha nature equals everyone equals Buddha nature equals everything equals Buddha nature. And we could just write that ad infinitum. That was his view. So in this view, both human beings and the physical world are the living expression of the life of the Buddha. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Space is just as full of Buddha nature as uh, our lectern is solid. A human being, in terms of Buddha nature, is equal to an insect. A tree is the same as a car, which is the same as, in Buddha nature, as a person. Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is the object of veneration of the living essence of Buddha nature. So, when this vision is applied to the environment, the implications for environmental consciousness, sacred environmental consciousness, is staggering. Nothing is mundane. Everything becomes sacred. And because everything is sacred, it must be revered, conserved, protected, purified, preserved, maintained. You get the idea. 
Reverence is not only an attitude of mind, it has to become a physical expression of the reverential attitude. One treats everything as as if it were because it is the living tissue of Buddhahood. If you think this through, this view means saving the entire world and everything within it through the way that we live, through the actions of body, speech, and mind. Because the way that we live is our realization of religious practice. And that practice itself, that very life, is the vehicle of reverence. Dogen's view of the indivisibility of Buddha nature is a religious mandate for environmental stewardship as well as for the enlightenment of human society. It's a mandate given not only for the sake of helping living beings, but one given for the sake of helping everything. It is for the sake of everything and everyone that one venerates, reveres, cherishes, and takes care of the world and everything and everyone in it. Everything is Buddha nature. Everything is equal in that Buddha nature. The grasses and the trees, the mountains and the rivers, says Dogen, proclaim the Buddha's teaching just as eloquently, just as equally as any human being does. There is no boundary between that which is sentient and insentient. The insentient communicate their sacred equality just as eloquently as the sentient do. Creatures and things express their life each in their own way, and they communicate that life in ways which nowadays we can actually observe through our own senses, understand intellectually, and even measure scientifically. All creatures are expressing their language to us, and we can see what that language is. This is the essence of Dogen's religious vision. Everything and everyone is Buddha nature. Therefore, we must treat it as such and care for it with reverence, love, renunciation, non-greed, gratitude, and generosity. The principle that Buddha nature is everything and everyone and that everything is Buddha nature permeates the entirety of Dogen's thought and teaching. However, it was not just philosophy. He did not just stop with broad statements about Buddha nature. He applied everything very, very practically. First and foremost, Dogen was a monastic as well as the founding abbot of a community of monks. So he applied his vision practically to encompass and to govern all the aspects of monastic life from the most sublime down to the most earthy. The man who wrote the Mountains and Rivers Sutra also gave his monks clear instructions on how to use little clay balls to clean themselves 
after they defecated. And also, how to use the toothbrush, included with prayers taken from the sutras to remind them what they were doing and why they were doing it, that everything they were doing was a religious act. His writings are full of these practical methods, each accompanied with exhortations to focus the mind on contemplation and on spiritual realization. There's a, a story that I was talking with John Sona about uh, before we started. Since everything is Buddha nature, nothing is to be wasted. And this uh, has to do especially with food, which nourishes the body. There's a lovely story about Dogen when he was uh, walking, visiting monasteries in China. He's walking up the hill to this monastery and there's a stream flowing uh, by the monastery. And he was walking, he sees a, a cabbage leaf floating down the stream. And he stops and he looks at it and he says, I'm not going to go there. They waste food. So he turned around and he started walking down the uh, hill again. After a few minutes, he hears this thunderous sound behind him. He turns around and looks, and there's the chief cook with a little net running down the hill, stopping by, whipping up the cabbage leaf in his net and running back up the hill again. And Dogen, who must have been a saint, about, I'm sure he was also quite hard to live with, as most saints are, <laughs> looked at the man and looked at the place and thought, hmm, maybe I will go there after all. He had very high standards. In his work called the Tenzo Kilkan, which is the instructions to the chief cook, Dogen gives clear guidance on how the monastery food, in this case water and rice, because this is the 13th century, is to be prepared and cared for. Along the principle that everything is Buddha nature. He says, once the food has been prepared, it must be cared for in the same way as we care for our own eyesight. The common property of the temple must be accorded the same care as that accorded to our own eyes. This food must be dealt with as if it were for the royal table. Exactly the same care must be given to all food, whether raw or cooked. He directed that the water in which the daily rice was washed was to be strained to make sure that not even a grain of rice would escape. The water with which the rice is washed must not be idly thrown away. In the old days, a straining bag was used for the purpose of ensuring that no rice was ever left in the water. Every grain of rice must be washed carefully by the chief cook personally. He must never leave until the washing is over, and he must, on no account, cast away even a single grain. This goes along with our, what Sister Judith was saying about the uh, Benedictine rule in which the seniors of the monastery, the older monks, would be empowered by the abbot to be abbots in their own area. And in Dogen's monastery, the chief cook personally had to oversee everything. He was in charge of holding the food of the, pro of the monastery that nurtured everyone so that they could practice the way together. He did not just focus on food. The kitchen pots 
were seen as part of Buddha nature and were to be cared for with the same spirit of devotion. The pot in which the rice is cooked must be thought of as our own heads. The water in which the rice is washed must be thought of as our own life. The instructions to the chief cook comes from a larger work called the uh, Chijishingi, which is a uh, an analysis of six of the offices of the monastery, of which the cook is the most famous, but the prior is another one, and the um, person who takes care of the monastery goods is another one. These instructions become a model for the way that the monastery seniors should carry out their duties, including the abbot. And this kind of reverential love and care is a model for how people can take care of their own lives with reverence and mindfulness and how they can apply that same kind of care, reverence, and mindfulness to the world around them. The monastery cook must be able to see the Buddha nature in everything. He or she must be content with the quality of food offered to the monastery and purchased for it, and do his or her best to prepare the food that is to be cooked that day. Above all, he or she must be able to see and show the Buddha nature within it once it is cooked. Dogen says, the chief cook must not eye the food superficially or with a discriminatory, judgmental mind. His spirit must be so free that the Buddha land appears within a blade of grass whenever he and others behold it. And he must be capable of giving a great sermon even on the very heart of a particle of dust. He must not be contemptuous when making poor quality soup, nor should he be overjoyed when he makes it with milk. If he is unattached to the last, he will not hate the first. There must be no laziness in him, however unappetizing the food may be. Should the food he beholds be of good quality, his training must become all the deeper so that he might avoid attachment thereto. His speech in the presence of all men must be the same, unchanging in mode, for should he change it, he is not a true seeker after Buddhahood. He must be polite in all he does, and strenuous in perfecting his efforts at cooking, for these actions will lead him in the path of purity and care, once trodden by the excellent monks of old. I myself long to be thus. He also says it is absolutely essential that the pure actions of the chief cook shall come forth from his realization of unity with all things and beings. Having no prejudices himself, he must be able to see into the minds and hearts of others. From only a stalk of cabbage, he seems to produce a 16-foot-long body of the Buddha. Now, I have had the um, honor and appreciation to um, eat the food of monastics who were good cooks and also to eat the food of monastics who were chief cooks. And you could have two monks make the same dish and one will have some quality that the other doesn't have. And that person who can put that quality in the food is the person who should be doing the cooking for the monastery. The monastic cook must cultivate gratitude and express that gratitude in the way that he or she serves the monastic community. 
Dogen says, how lucky we are, how blessed is this body. For all eternity, there will be no greater opportunity than that offered to us now. Its merit is undefilable. When we serve our fellow monks purely, hundreds and thousands of lives are unfolded in one single day's or hour's work, which will bear fruit for many lives to come. To grasp truth thus is clearly to express that gratitude. The reverence for Buddha nature, which we Buddhists would express as devotion to the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, is the mind of love. Dogen explains that the cook must love the materials of his work in the same way that he loves the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and likens that love to the way parents love their children. Please think of this kind of love in terms of cherishing the entire world with all the beings and all the things that exist within it. He writes, The mind of our parents expresses love, and we must love the three treasures in the same way as our parents love us. However poor a person may be, it is frequently possible to see the love he expresses towards his children. Who is capable of understanding the extent of his loving mind other than he himself? All men, whether rich or poor, long for their children to grow strong and big, protecting them with unsparing devotion against inclement weather. This is the greatest of all sincerity. No one who does not possess this mind can understand it. A chief cook must love water and rice in the same way that parents love their children. The Buddha gave us 45 years of his life because he wanted to teach us parental love by his example. So here is a monastic model of love that cherishes the Buddhahood, the Buddha nature in all things, while devoting itself selflessly in service to the monastic community as it cherishes and protects the resources of the community. And you can extrapolate this for lay life in exactly the same way. This is an example of a heart and mind which is at one with its spiritual source and which expresses that spiritual unity by selflessly loving the things of the earth and the activity of those things in the same way that parents love their children. This mind of love, this kind of love, is based on reverence that is the foundation for an ultra-sacred stewardship of the earth and all the things that are contained within it. Charity, sharing, generosity is the foremost Buddhist virtue. All of our morality in Buddhism begins with charity, which we call dana. It is charity that opens the heart and enables us to care for something other than ourselves. Dogen says, the offering of only one coin or blade of grass can cause the arising of good. For the teaching itself is the true treasure, and the true treasure is the very teaching. We must never desire any reward, and we must always share everything we have with others. It is an act of charity to build a ferry or a bridge, and all forms of industry are charity if they benefit others. If they benefit others, he says. But the question arises, what if others are harmed by 
industry? What if industry harms the resources of life for all beings by fouling the water, polluting the air, and unnaturally accelerating the warming of the planet? If this kind of industry harms others, then there does appear a moral obligation to change industry in order to do that which will help not harm the delicate web of being. This kind of action is consistent with the spirit of right livelihood, one of our most fundamental teachings. And it has to be done in a spirit of loving kindness, compassion, charity, tenderness, benevolence, sympathy. This is a real project for human beings. This is only a a drop in the bucket of Dogen's teachings, but it gives you a good sense of how the monastic life, and more importantly than that, the monastic virtues, the monastic attitudes, can become a template for an environmental renaissance. In Buddhism, there is more than enough teaching to serve as a wholesome foundation for environmental awareness, education, not to mention the necessity for compassionate, vigorous, and decisive action. Because all of us have to become this egg standing on its end. I'd like to just close uh, by saying that uh, Practically speaking, in our own monastery, we are trying to do our best to adopt uh, technology for cleaner and uh, more efficient energy. We are uh, vegetarians. Uh, Our abbot is a fanatic recycler. Religious fanatics are the worst kinds. We try to conserve as much as possible, and we try not to waste and stretch our resources uh, too far. We try to purchase green products. We have a long-term plan for greening our monastery. We live on donations, so the limitations for us are obvious. But we're still trying to do our part, and I'm certainly going to come away from our uh, talk with a lot of good ideas uh, for better ways to reduce our environmental impact. We are uh, active contemplatives And in our teaching, we're trying to emphasize the qualities of monastic life and general Buddhist practice, which can help people cultivate the faith and determination that they're going to need to solve the really grave problems of the day. And as you all are all aware, those grave problems, which we humans experience, even though they're environmental problems, they're fundamentally spiritual problems. I personally feel that the environmental situation is uh, very grave, and I uh, try to remain as positive as I can be. We are already seeing the signs that the beings in our world, in this and in the coming generations, are going to face some really, really difficult and grave uh, consequences and decisions uh, because of our lack of wise stewardship There are going to be many difficult and painful choices that will have to be made in order to reverse the environmental damage that has already been done. But in dealing with those problems, the virtues of the monastic life, 
become the invaluable resource and actually contain the blueprint for success. Reverence, renunciation, noble poverty, generosity, celibacy, compassion, conservation, selfless service, education, faith, morality, kindness. It just goes on and on and on. In coming years, people may well have to live, learn to live more like monastics, learning to be content with less as conditions will force all of us to elevate our vision and to change our vision in order to do what will be necessary to sustain the natural conditions of life on our earth. If we monastics can have a positive influence, my prayer is that that we can be the egg standing on its end. Through our monastic lives and vows, we can take something very ordinary and transform it into something extraordinary. We can show people, by example, how to be happy and fulfilled without having to have a lot of stuff. We can help others by inspiring them to cultivate a life of virtue that seeks to help beings as it cherishes the world and all the amazing and wonderful things that are contained within it. These virtues are the pathway to human happiness. They may be a blueprint for survival, and they are certainly the pathway to enlightenment itself. May we all realize it together. Thank you all.